0: This episode contains discussion of autopsy, crime scenes, and family violence. While the show is not graphic, listener discretion is advised. As of March 2019, we've not yet received access to the GBI files in the Ware County case, though we may eventually be granted permission to view the material. If that new information is gathered, it'll be shared in our Fall 2019 Updates episode. This is The Fall Line. Every state has its unnamed children. It's not common for the young to go missing and for no one to look or to ask questions. But still, they're there, among the other Jane and John Does. Hopefully, their files are tended with care. Missing children get age progressions, but when new forensic artwork comes out for an unidentified child, it's a more sophisticated version of that same moment in time, hoping to call up a memory, to find a family who has disappeared and left their small child behind. In Georgia, there are two such cases. The first is a girl who was found in Ware County and who is sometimes known as Christmas Doe. She was found just a few days before the holiday. And then there's Dennis Doe, a boy whose body was discovered in DeKalb County. He was found off Clifton Church Road in an unincorporated subdivision. And we know who gave him the nickname Dennis. The investigators who've sought out every avenue that might, might lead to his identification. In the interim, they wanted him to have a name. They talk about solving Dennis's case before they retire. Their files on Dennis fill an entire conference table. They've saved everything. They're willing to talk to reporters over and over again and answer the same questions. Because they're holding out for the possibility that, eventually, coverage will catch the right eye. So we have two children, neither showing a clear cause of death. 1988 is not so long ago, and 1999 even less so. Someone out there knows who they are. On an aerial map, Waycross, Georgia, seems more farmland and forest than town. The population of Waycross sits at about 15,000, give or take, and Ware County at less than 35,000. Ware sits snug against the Florida line at the tip of the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge. If the panhandle feels more deep south than the rest of Florida... It's equally true that border cities like Waycross are as much sunshine state as Peach. Maybe even a little more. They know swampland and they know pine. US-1 runs right up Waycross, heading toward Key West on one extreme and the upper reaches of Maine at the other. You could ride US-1 down into Florida easy. Or maybe you'd get on 95 if you had the inclination. Either one would get you across state lines. And crossing state lines is one of the simplest ways to complicate a crime scene, to muddy a trail. Florida to Waycross is less than an hour. And there's so much unpopulated roadway between. More lumber trucks and big rigs are out there than businesses and people. If you were to drop something or someone over the line, off the highway, there's a good chance that no one would even see. Every city has its unofficial dumping areas, a dead-end street where tires appear, or an abandoned lot piled with couches, fast food bags, whatever else we're comfortable leaving behind. On highways and routes and country roads, it's the same, with areas where debris seems to accumulate, maybe a little furniture, old building supplies, or more tires. (laughs) Always more tires. West of Waycross, about 16 miles from the historic downtown and 35 miles north of the Florida line, there's an area called Millwood. It's a little unincorporated community without its own police force or schools. And on that stretch of road between Waycross and Millwood, there is, or there was, at least one dumping ground. On December 21st, 1988, it was warm, nearly 80 degrees at the height of the day, and already past 60 that morning. It was clear, too. Stopping at the side of the road might be easier or more pleasant than finding a gas station. That dumping ground was along a busy logging route, and so maybe it was perfectly natural that a timber worker would eventually explore it. Maybe what he told his supervisor is true, that he just stopped to relieve himself. Maybe he was interested in some of the items that had been left. There was a large TV console, among other things. Newspapers and smaller scraps littered the ground. That road crosses over the Satilla, a blackwater river that drains the coastal plain and runs all the way out into the Atlantic. Whether you're looking from a satellite view or from the banks, the water is dark, a good hiding place for just about anything. The woods seem a little sparse in comparison. There, it would be easier to spot something out of place. Whatever made that timberman choose that particular patch of woods near but not on the river He didn't immediately return to his truck. He was likely headed toward Albany Highway and was on the clock. After all, it was his supervisor who eventually made the call to police. Maybe it was simple curiosity that led him further in to examine the TV console more closely. It was only about 30 feet off the main road. This console was a heavy wooden model the kind that was built to surround a television and make the appliance feel more like a piece of furniture. It was the sort that was popular in the 70s and early 80s, before technology became sleek. The kind of furniture that a family might eventually stick in a basement or garage, meaning to put it on the curb or take it to the dump, or even with vague plans to fix the thing somehow, someday. With this TV, there was no screen. There was no box. Wooden panels were nailed to the open spaces where the TV itself should have been. Some reports say that the timberman just nudged the console with his foot. Others say that he kicked the side, interested to see what it might hold. Either way, the console splintered and a hard sided suitcase spilled out, bouncing off the dirt. The latch popped open and hunks of concrete that seemed poorly mixed based on their fragility tumbled out. The timberman's gaze fell on something protruding from the mess. It was a small curled hand. In minutes, he was back on route, but it was his supervisor who called the Waycross sheriff to report the body of a child in the woods. He said he'd gone up the road to see for himself. Law enforcement moved quickly, with four officers, including the Waycross captain and the chief deputy captain, on the scene by 12:25 p.m. They quickly identified the contents of the suitcase as human remains. And then they called in GBI agent Jim Ellis. In Georgia towns with smaller forces and less equipment, this outsourcing is completely common. The case is formally handed over to the GBI once an agent is on scene. Now sometimes that handover may happen after an initial investigation has begun, but because Ellis's office was close, He made it to Duncan Bridge Road in enough time to direct the crime scene investigation. Waycross had preserved the scene and then assisted Agent Ellis in his examination. Sometimes our research includes a review of crime scene photos, but as of the date of this recording, we're still waiting to see them. So, our descriptions are based on the initial incident report and our own research. As accurate as we can get, but not perfectly precise. To understand what may have happened to the victim and who might have committed the crime, we have to start at the place we think best, all of the effort that went into hiding her. As best as we can understand, the crime scene was properly processed and treated with all due care. Evidence, including the console, a pillowcase, a washcloth, an Albany newspaper, a few clean diapers found in the dirt— It was all collected and bagged and stored at the sheriff's office until it could be sent to Atlanta for testing. Photos were taken and processed via the GBI. The entire suitcase was packed into a body bag and taken to the ware morgue en route to Atlanta. Law enforcement wanted to preserve as much evidence as possible, and the concrete was already crumbling. Based on what they could see, the body was that of a child, a black female wearing a diaper between one and five years old. After examination, her age range was amended to two to three. She'd been dead for an estimated one to two months. The girl had been wrapped in a small brown blanket and then placed in a gym bag, which was zipped. The gym bag was then placed in what is repeatedly referred to as a black metal suitcase, which was filled with concrete. The suitcase itself was wrapped in duct tape and shoved inside the TV console, which was then filled with concrete as well. Three-quarter-inch plywood boards were nailed at either open end. When that timberman had kicked the side, it had broken easily, and the suitcase, duct tape and all, had opened just as quickly. For so much effort to be done with a kick or a nudge seems unlikely, but it's possible. If the concrete was improperly mixed, maybe at home or in haste or without the usual tools, it could contain air pockets, which would weaken it. Trapped moisture would have the same effect. Maybe that would be enough to make the concrete shatter upon impact with the ground. But the duct tape, too? That is harder to imagine. There are too many factors to say whether the timberman was fully truthful. Perhaps he pried that case open, and perhaps he didn't. But the concrete itself is strange. Why fill a suitcase with concrete only to put it inside of something else, which you then also fill with concrete? We've wondered if these events took place at different times. Perhaps the child's killer had tried to sink the suitcase in water first, only to have it resurface, and then had moved on to the TV console. The entire setup was unusual. All the layers, the two separate rounds of concrete. There's something about it that feels like growing desperation. A sense of separating the victim, the crime, as far from the perpetrator as physically possible. Based on the description of the boards nailed to the TV console, which were prefabricated white and not cut and painted by hand, our best guess is that they were the sort nailed over windows of abandoned houses. Concrete, prefab boards, nails, all things a contractor or a builder might have on hand. And the outdated TV console? It would be heavy and awkward to move. In 1988, the most likely option would be a pickup truck. Anyone might have one, but a builder or contractor certainly would. The console itself seems less like a deliberate choice than something chosen because it was on hand or maybe found on the side of the road. This adds up to a crime that occurred at home where supplies on hand were used to cover it up. Former law enforcement told us that there was road construction going on in the area at the time, but we found nothing to indicate that the concrete at the scene would have been used in road work. This little girl, she was a toddler. They thought she'd passed away in October or maybe early November, but the concrete complicated that guess. Whether the console had been at the site the whole time is unknown. She could have been brought from Florida or from closer to home. There was that Albany newspaper on the ground, right next to the clean diapers. And the diapers were grouped together, as a parent might stick in the interior pocket of a car door just in case. She was dressed in a white pullover with a red polo logo on the left breast, and her hair was done. Reports differ slightly on the details, with Nick Meck listing the shirt as long-sleeved and the police report as short-sleeved. Some forensic art recreates the top as a sweater, and some as more of a shirt. The crime scene notes do not mention her hair at all. Nick Meck describes her hair as pulled back into a ponytail but the Doe Network lists her as wearing multiple ponytails clipped with red bows. Early forensic sketches and the forensic clay reconstruction bear that out. Both show the red bows, and when we spoke to the artist who created them, she remembered those hair accessories. The child had pierced ears, but on the bottom, she wore white long john-style thermal pajama pants. We keep coming back to that detail there's something in that combination. Had she been halfway ready for bed? Had she needed an emergency change and been put into pants that didn't match her outfit? The white top or sweater was hard to keep clean, brand name. The bows in her hair, she wouldn't wear those to bed. The white and red have a holiday feel, like she might have been dressed for December, a family party or church or a picture, maybe just an outing. And perhaps that's too much meaning to place on an outfit, but there's something about that transition period between afternoon and evening, when a child would be in half pajamas, half out. Children are tired. Parents are worn out, maybe just off of work. Tempers are short. If there's drinking, it often starts around dinner. In an abusive household, that can trigger disaster. And if her time of death was closer to Christmas than originally estimated... Incidents of family violence increased around the holiday season, with a UK study showing a spike of 25%. Even on a normal evening, an accident or a tantrum on the way to bed could set someone off. And she was so small. Girl doesn't feel quite like the right word for a child who was still wearing a diaper and weighed somewhere around 25 pounds and was only two and a half feet tall. That's about the size of a small two-year-old. But She could have been three, and some estimates even say four. But a baby still, or almost, in a clean white shirt with bows in her hair. Someone loved her. And someone was willing to bury her under layers of metal and concrete and wood, in the hopes that no one would notice she was gone. So comes the question. Did something happen to the person who loved her? In an AP report published just one day after she was recovered, the sheriff is quoted as saying, quote, I don't know whether it was an abused child that was accidentally killed or a kidnapped victim that was killed somewhere else and brought here, but somebody went to great extremes to put it together and then leave it out there in the open. The state of Christmas Doe's body made it impossible to identify definitive signs of abuse, but starting with her family makes the most sense. According to Medline, the third leading cause of death in children aged one to four is homicide. That homicide is almost always committed by a family member, with beating and suffocation as the leading causes of death. One of the most comprehensive summaries on the subject was published by the Department of Justice in 2001. It concentrated mostly on findings from the late 1980s through the early 1990s. That's precisely the time period covering the cases of Christmas Doe and Dennis Doe. There's a particularly troubling point made in the bulletin. Quote, The actual homicide rates for young children may be even higher than official statistics suggest. The homicides of young children are among the most difficult to document because they so often resemble deaths resulting from accidents or other causes. And SIDS, choking, falls, accidental suffocation are all mentioned as causes of death that might obscure murder. A stranger abduction is possible, but not probable. Parents or guardians would have no obvious reason to fail to report it, and there would be a missing child on the record that matched her description. As of March 2019, no missing persons case has been successfully linked to Christmas Doe. But there are a few missing person cases that come up when she's mentioned. In particular, there's Bonita Sanders, who disappeared in Atlantic City, New Jersey, in September of 1986. And there's Kimberly Boyd last seen in Orangeburg, South Carolina, in April of 1987. Both were reported as possible, or even likely, non-familial abductions, but that's where their similarities end. Bonita Sanders was last seen on her own front porch, where she was strapped into a stroller, eating a popsicle, and watching her siblings play. Or that's what her mother told authorities. It was September, and she was only a few days away from her second birthday. Her mother, who was also named Benita, reported that the toddler had been snatched off the porch when no one was looking. Thus, the disappearance was at first considered an abduction. The AP reports that Benita's father, Abdul Salam, was seeking custody of all of his children. He was in jail at the time she was kidnapped and was not considered a suspect. He did raise concerns about his ex-girlfriend, Benita's mother, who he said had abandoned their daughter at a local hospital soon after she was born. And just a month after their daughter's disappearance, Benita's mother boarded a bus to Philadelphia. She carried her newborn son, who was only two days old. According to the Delaware Morning News, she left him in the Philadelphia bus terminal and then rode back on another bus to Atlantic City. At the time of Benita's disappearance, the city prosecutor's office declined to comment on the kidnapping, but they did note the case was being actively explored. Bonita's mother was their likely person of interest. After all, you always start close to home. Then there comes a lull in coverage 23 years long. But in 2009, the Courier News reported that law enforcement received a credible tip that Bonita was buried in a wooded area a few miles from the family's 1986 residence. Law enforcement apparently believed this information. Though the search went on for eight days, her body was not recovered. The case remains open, and Benita's family, particularly her sister Tamika, consider their mother to be the only person of interest. Tamika has indicated to several news outlets that she has information which further implicates her mother. And according to the girl's aunt, who was quoted extensively during the 2009 search, baby Benita couldn't walk or talk yet. She could not have wandered off alone. Namus lists Benita as excluded in the Christmas Doe case. DNA is available in both cases, but whether a comparison has been run, we don't know. We queried the University of Texas Identification Lab to ask about the comparison method, but did not receive a response. But even without DNA, the match doesn't work. The timing is off, and so is the probable time of death. And with a suspect, a good suspect, so close to home, the likelihood is that Bonita Sanders is waiting to be found somewhere in the woods of New Jersey. There are certain cases that bring in the same tips, the same possible matches, again and again. When we spoke to the DeKalb Medical Examiner's Office about Dennis Doe, the other case covered in this episode, they mentioned the news coverage brings in the same few possible matches, which they've since ruled out. They're grateful for any information, of course, but it brings up an interesting bridge to the work so many regular people are doing. Sitting at home, going through dough cases, and attempting to match them with missing persons. And for some, it's more than a passing interest. It's become their life's work, their societal contribution. If you've read the fascinating book, Skeleton Crew, written by Deborah Halber, you know there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people out there, quietly working as citizen contributors to cold cases. Many, like those highlighted in Skeleton Crew, don't focus on a single case. Their work might be better described as the comparison of datasets. Some work with spreadsheets, saving information on hundreds of cases so quick searches can be run. Others use Namus and NickMac and the Doe Network to run custom searches. Once a missing child's story is widely known, say Lisa Irwin or Asha DeGree then that child will be suggested again and again as a match for any unidentified person who even vaguely meets their parameters. When I spoke to Deborah Halber, author of Skeleton Crew, she mentioned that the sheer number of match suggestions might, at least for some armchair detectives, come from a sense of competition, of wanting to be the one to crack the case. But she also pointed out that an unlikely match, such as suggesting a set of female remains for a male missing child, isn't as odd as one might think. She actually offered several case examples where bodies have been misidentified by age, sex, race, and a number of other factors. Once in a while, the suggestions are so strong, so precise, that it's hard to believe that the cases don't match up. For Christmas Doe, there's one strong comparison, Kimberly Boyd. We've wondered about Christmas Doe's mother. And maybe like Kimberly Boyd's, she disappeared along with her daughter. In 1987, Sarah Boyd, her daughter Kimberly, and her good friend Linda McCord drove from their home in Orangeburg, South Carolina to a gospel concert in Walterboro, South Carolina. They were in Linda's blue Lincoln, or as newspapers describe it, her husband's car. They made it to the April 3rd concert without incident, but they never made it home. According to a friend of the family, they were last seen driving home slowly, on Highway 15. When the trio didn't arrive back in Orangeburg, their families contacted local police, who in turn contacted law enforcement in surrounding counties. SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, was also called in. The Times Democrat reported that the Lincoln was located on April 5th in Dorchester County. The Charlie Project notes that it was Linda's husband who found the car. He'd been out searching since they disappeared. In late April of 1987, the then sheriff is quoted in the Times Democrat as explaining that the freeze plug had given out on the car and that it had to have been running hot, that it was as far as it would go. Kimberly, Sarah, and Linda were gone. Law enforcement searched a half mile of wood surrounding the car. They did so to, quote, satisfy the families, as Sheriff Carlson has said, but they found nothing. Another officer noted that the car had been seen on the side of the road by a few witnesses and that it had to have been there for at least 10 hours before identification. The search took place approximately two weeks after the car was found. It was called off when, as the Greenwood Index Journal reported, officers stumbled upon a large marijuana crop. It was worth an estimated $20 million. Officers then directed their attention toward destroying the plants. In late spring of 87, the news coverage faded away. The next apparent mention in local papers is in the form of a letter to the editor, written to mark the year anniversary of the trio's disappearance. Beverly Brown, a fellow educator and friend of Sarah Boyd, wrote to the Orangeburg Times Democrat to point out that the paper had not marked the anniversary of the disappearance. She reminded them of a $6,000 reward offered by the families. The school where Sarah worked held an event, Where are they now to try and raise awareness? And yet, the case doesn't come up again until 1990. The Charlie Project, and this is the only place we've been able to find this information, reported that it was then that someone used Sarah Boyd's credit card at a local store. And they signed the receipt. But the handwriting was illegible, and police don't know who did it. There have been a few anniversary articles published, each highlighting that foul play is suspected, but that police have no evidence as to what may have happened. In a 2001 Post and Courier article, there's discussion of a cold case squad reviewing the file. This article includes the only interview we've seen with Philip Boyd, Sarah's husband and Kimberly's father. He said he'd been in love with Sarah ever since the seventh grade. And that year his family went missing, he called the police every day. And he couldn't sleep at night, thinking that he should have gone with them to protect them. He told the Post and Courier that he thought he'd, quote, go crazy. Linda McCord's husband isn't mentioned, but it's easy to imagine he felt the same. Did the cold case unit plan any further searches? Would they have turned anything up even if they had? A witness reported seeing another car following behind the three, though not who was driving it. They did say, though, that Linda was going slow, 30 miles tops on a rural highway. That's why they remembered. Perhaps the car was already on its way to breaking down. And that's all there is on Sarah, Kimberly, and Linda. If not for Kimberly's photo, there might be even less. It's striking. It's a professional picture with a toddler in a puffed white dress, her hair in ponytails, clipped with white barrettes and satin bows. She's looking a little off camera, as if someone's to the side asking her to smile. That picture appears in most digital write-ups of the case. It's hard to forget. And when people see the forensic sketches of Christmas dough with those bows in her hair, maybe something clicks. But NamUs lists Kimberly Boyd as excluded, too, on what grounds we don't know. From reviewing files on other cases, it's nearly always a comparison of dental records, DNA, or some forensic comparison that denotes age. So, who left a baby in the woods, and who didn't look for her? The same question can be asked in the case of Dennis Doe. The possibilities vary. An abusive parent, two abusive parents, an abused partner too afraid to say anything, maybe cut off from their own family— without relatives around to notice something wrong. Or relatives too far away, separated by countries even. It happens. It has happened. In early 2019, two long-standing doe cases were solved through DNA comparison, and the identities of the victims there made this reality clear. In February of 2019, South Carolina's WJBF reported that a 20-year-old unsolved murder case had reached resolution. The victim, found nude off I-85 in Spartanburg County, had been discovered in 1998. When she was finally identified as Myung Wacho, a wife and mother who hadn't been seen in decades, another fact fell into place, namely why her son, Bobby Witt, had never been reported missing. Her body had been discovered in Orangeburg, South Carolina, also in 1998, dumped off the same highway and found in the brush beneath a billboard. Perhaps they would have been linked earlier, but they were found in different states. When the mother was found, she was identified as East Asian, but the state of the boy's remains made it difficult to ascertain race or cause of death. They eventually determined, though, that he'd been strangled. According to the Washington Post, he spent another two decades known as the boy under the billboard. The Post also reports that forensic genealogy was used to eventually connect him to his mother the then-still-unidentified South Carolina victim. And those connections were made by Barbara Ray Venter, the same forensic genealogist who cracked the Golden State Killer's case. Her work led to the relatives, and those discoveries identified a killer, the husband and father, John Russell Witt. Reporter Diane Diamond notes that police found him in prison in Kentucky. When relatives asked why they hadn't reported Young and Bobby missing, they all gave variations on the same answer. John told them that the mother and son had moved back to South Korea. His family was in Ohio, and at the time, John's family were living in North Carolina. Contact was sporadic. One cousin told the Post that she'd searched for Bobby for years, always hoping that she might reconnect with him on social media. They never had an inkling that something was wrong. Stress, Sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps. So for her, the 50 minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress and well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with NewCalm. NuCalm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery, without drugs and side effects. The NuCalm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnucalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NuCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fall a-L-M.com. Ball, when we spoke to Angeline Hartman, Nick Meck, media director, and the host of Inside Crime podcast, she offered further insight on why missing children might go unreported by their custodial parents, families, and Sometimes even their community.
1: Every situation is different. And we've all heard those stories about those horrific, you know, domestic situations where a partner is worried about losing their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend. And and they do strange things. Right. So that is that happens, you know, more often than we'd like to think about. So that's one reason. You know, another reason is sometimes that primary caregiver just may not know actually what's going on with this child, uh, may not know all the details, and believes whatever uh, they're being told at that time. And because they're in whatever the romantic situation may be, um, sometimes they're gullible and they don't ask the questions that need to be asked. So sometimes it's just that simple. Very sad, but we've seen it happen time and time again. When we're talking about extended family, you know, we can't assume that family members communicate all the same, right? So, uh, you know, while while lots of families stay in touch, and there's lots of ways to stay in touch now, just because people are related doesn't mean that they keep in touch. Um, You may have. Extended family members who don't know certain details about their relatives and they don't bother to ask. They're just not involved. So and so may be, you know, in another state or across the country. And yes, they're related and sure they should ask questions, but they just don't. I think when we're talking about situations where a child is gone from a school situation or suddenly is no longer in a community, um, And you wonder why people in those school systems or in that community didn't say something. I think what happens is a lot of times teachers, administrators, they are dealing with a lot. They're dealing with a lot of children. They're dealing with a lot of, you know, family situations. Um, And depending on what time of year it is, they may just make assumptions like, oh, This little child did not come back from Christmas break. This little child did not come back from whatever holiday break. Uh, So I guess either that they make assumptions like, oh, that family, you know, moved on. That family is now homeschooling this child. That family moved away. Um, Also, there are different custodial situations now. Um, You know, this child may be living, you know, with that parent in a different city. and. A lot of times, educators don't want to ask those personal questions because they they can be worried about offending somebody or it's not their business or whatever the reason is. But um, we really hope at the National Center, we encourage people to ask those kinds of questions because if you don't ask those questions, you're not going to get those answers. Um, and sometimes it's up to a person like a teacher, somebody in the community to recognize that child was here a few weeks ago and I haven't seen that child in a while. Let me just just ask the simple question. And it's OK to be wrong. That's another reason. Sometimes people are worried about being wrong. And so they simply don't ask.
0: When it comes to DeKalb County's Dennis Doe, who was likely between five and seven years old, maybe that's true. Maybe it's as simple as someone not asking. But unlike many other victims we've covered on this show, Dennis Doe received both media and police attention. If a teacher had noticed him missing, you think they would have seen the coverage. There's plenty of news to have gone around. After all, DeKalb isn't a small town. It's a metro Atlanta county, and Dennis was found inside the perimeter of I 285. That's a distinction that means to Atlantans, he was ITP in the city when he was found. But perhaps there's a simpler explanation as to why no teacher contacted police. Maybe Dennis wasn't in school. When we spoke with officials at the DeKalb Medical Examiner's Office, it occurred to us that he might not have had a teacher. Though George's lottery-funded pre-K program was up and running in 97, children were not required to attend. And Dennis could have been born after the cutoff date to attend kindergarten in the fall of 1998. The school system might not have known he existed. But that still leaves family, friends, and neighbors. He was a well-cared-for child. Dennis was thin, but he was nourished, and he wore new clothing and Timberland boots that had only been on the market for a few months. In fact, they were only sold in a few test market stores in Atlanta. He was dressed warmly for the weather, assuming the estimated time of death is correct, the late fall of 1998. When his body was found in 1999, he'd been arranged in a wooded clearing on the edge of a small cemetery. The cemetery is attached to a church. And to access that clearing, one has to know about a back road that's not obvious to passersby. One would have to be local. And yet, no one came forward to claim him. Angeline Hartman remembers. She was an Atlanta-area reporter at the time Dennis was discovered, and she stayed in touch with the DeKalb Medical Examiner's Office to this day. At the time of this production, she had just released her own episode on the case. Angeline is not the only one who has been determined to see the case through, though. For 20 years, that medical examiner's office has strived to get Dennis back his real name. We first made contact with chief investigator Mark Anglin, who invited us to the office to discuss Dennis. During our meeting, a few things became apparent. First, the Decab ME has never treated Dennis as a cold case. Second, they pursued every possible avenue towards his identification. Third, they put thousands of hours toward that cause. Every clothing label, each scrap of trash from the scene, it's been followed to its exhaustive end. Isotope testing told them that Dennis was from our area, somewhere between Atlanta and northern Florida. Samples have been sent out to forensic labs at the University of Florida and to the FBI. A profile was developed and run against CODIS, but there wasn't a hit. Every tip has been followed up. Currently, they're hoping for a viable DNA profile that can be run through an open source DNA database. But Dennis's remains may not yield a successful extraction. When the FBI profile sample was run, they were looking at a totally different DNA preparation. And the DeKalb ME investigator, Linda Gochenauer, remembers a technician telling her the samples might be difficult to use in certain tests. Still, they're trying. Because there's no alternative. They want this case solved. Our society has become very familiar with DNA. So much so that we don't always understand the limitations or why or when tests are run or not run. Especially in light of recent cold case resolutions, one of the first questions the public has is, why don't we do more of this? That answer is complex. We had the opportunity to interview Dr. Rick Snow, a nationally renowned forensic anthropologist who works with NICMAC and other organizations. He's completed hundreds of identifications, including soldiers in Afghanistan. He has worked extensively with the DeKalb ME, and they made the conversation possible. Dr. Snow was able to tell us more about why all remains aren't tested and why some DNA tests do not prove as helpful as we might hope. The following excerpts come from our correspondence with him. In the interest of clarity, we're employing a male reader to voice Dr. Snow's answers.
2: Regarding DNA, yes, it is often run on unidentified remains, but not always. Most identifications are made more quickly and just as effectively by comparing antemortem dental and medical records with individuals missing in the area. Again, many of the unidentified dead are found not far from where they were last seen, so we often have an indication of who this individual might be even prior to the autopsy or anthropological examination. Sending DNA out for analysis usually takes months to get the results back, or through a private lab, it can be quite expensive, neither of which law enforcement wants to hear. Sadly, even with this marvelous tool of DNA, many times the deceased is cremated or buried without DNA being taken. I can cite a number of my own cases in which I had to exhume remains of an individual in order to get DNA for analysis, some of them as recently as three years ago, long after the recognition of the value of DNA had become commonplace.
0: In cases like Dr. Snow mentions, where DNA is unavailable or hasn't provided a match, the media can lose interest. One of the few things likely to garner new media coverage in an old case is updated forensic art. Sketches, forensic busts, computer imaging, and now even 3D printers are used to capture likenesses. But often, there's no comparison for what that likeness might be. Remains may have been skeletonized or decomposed to a point that distinguishing features are no longer present. Then begins the slow process that is a mix of forensic anthropology, computer generation, measurement systems, and educated guesswork. And then there's the element of artistic interpretation. How someone looks in death will not necessarily strike a chord with those who knew them in life. We learn that in the case of Julie Doe. Christmas Doe and Dennis Doe have both been the subject of several forensic reconstructions. In the past seven years, Christmas has received an updated GBI sketch and NICMEC computer imaging. She's also been the subject of a clay reconstruction and a sketch done at the time of her discovery. A clay reconstruction, NICMEC imaging, and sketches were also done for Dennis, and Angeline Hartman tells me he's receiving new imaging this year. After all, it's been 20 years since he was found. NICMEC marks these anniversaries with a press push. The FBI has helped Dennis's case in one remarkable way. They've provided a forensic bust that was made with a 3D printer, and with precise measurements based on his skeleton the average tissue depth, and estimated size of features. The result is hauntingly lifelike, a perfect replica of a living, breathing child. On our second visit to the Dacabemy, we sat down with Linda to go through dozens of boxes of files and photos. She also brought out the bus so we could see it. His hair, the shape of his eyes, the curve of his jaw and cheeks— It was as if we'd caught sight of a little boy who'd chosen that moment to hold perfectly still. I can still picture him. He's African American, with slightly crooked teeth. He'd already lost a few of the baby ones. He's not quite smiling, paused on the edge of something. Maybe a story, maybe laughter. This printing takes the work of artists, forensic anthropologists, and technicians who can translate a series of numbers into a face. The possibilities have come a long way since Marla Lawson, the first female forensic artist in the GBI's history, began her career. If her name sounds familiar, it's because her daughter, Kelly, is the GBI's current forensic artist. As Kelly and Marla tell it, Marla specifically trained her daughter to take her place she couldn't find an artist that met her criteria for the job. As Marla and Kelly have become friends of the show, we've had several chances to speak to them about Georgia cases. Recently, we visited them at Marla's house to ask her about her experience on the Christmas dough case and her time spent making forensic reconstructions from clay. We interviewed Marla in her art studio, where her paintings lean against every surface. They'd invited us over just between church and Sunday dinner. The house is exactly what you'd hope any artist would have. Space and light and a yard bursting with plants. There are crepe myrtles brushing the roof. To get to her studio, we passed huge vases and museum-like displays of figurines. There's a large wooden statue there, save from a fire that still smells like smoke. You just have to get close enough to notice. Marla Lawson appreciates beauty. Maybe it's why she and Kelly draw such lovely pictures of George's missing and unidentified. As in the case of Julie Doe, a lifelike, peaceful forensic rendering can cause the eyes to linger. Sometimes those few extra seconds count. That's all it takes to get an identification. We asked Marla to talk us through her reconstruction process. After all, She's the artist who completed Christmas Doze. She was working in the field long before any of the technology we now take for granted entered the equation. She said that on an average case, she'd receive remains, a skull or parts of a skull, and have to use a combination of experience, artistic skill, and understanding of human anatomy to imagine the person it had once been. She discussed some of the indications of race and sex and age she'd learned to spot, then moved on to explaining how she actually crafted her reconstructions. For years, she actually searched through art supply stores and hardware supply stores to get what she needed.
3: So anyway, once you get proficient at the age, approximate age, and race and sex of the bone that you have, you now what I did was I went to Home Depot and I assembled some little stands with plumber's pipes on them that you could just sit your skull on in front of you. And now they have all sorts of uh, nice things uh, to do, but I'm just uh, like the kind of person who just uses what I got. So I just use my little stands that I make and I actually photograph the skull and put it on its little stand. And so... There are a series of markers, which are erasers that are cut in different tissue depth thicknesses that years ago, a bunch of doctors sat in a morgue and measured with an instrument called a pith. They would insert up underneath the the flesh and uh, of cadavers and uh, give you race and uh, sex, not sex so much, but actual race and Maybe a little bit of age, too, with that. But now they have all sorts of wonderful things like uh, CAT scans and all sorts of machines that will get up under there and give you the tissue depth thickness. And But anyway, you cut your little erasers off and you glue them on the different landmarks of the face that were measured. And that really gives you an overall shape of the face, size. Of Maybe how big the cheeks are, but what I find with those erasers is that a lot of times when you get through, they all look like just a a square head or a round, funny-shaped head. So what I like to do is go by the musculature also. Now, that is a a method that they use in England called the Manchester Method that they developed, and you can, like, put— uh, different muscles up underneath all that flesh uh, or clay that you're going to put on it. And it must have been six months I, w- I was doing these things and I said, you know, I just hate the clay. I said, I just really hate this clay. Because you could touch the reconstruction and it would just leave a hole or a dent. I said, I just got to come up with something better than this. So I went to the uh, store and I started using this product called creative paper clay and it air dries and you just like smooth it where you want it with a paint brush which most artists are proficient with and you uh you can overlay the markers and stuff and at least when you get through using the stuff you can paint it and and it looks pretty and it's once you sand it just a little it gets smooth but most of the time, you can make up for the little bumps and bulges, bulgy places with the camera. And if you're good with the camera, you can take just the right photograph, and it, it will fix that part of it for you. So you get your tissue on it, but really, if you hold up the skull, you could just about see what it's going to look like before you ever get started. I mean, if you do enough of them, I think I must have done over over 150 in my 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 day at the GBI, because when I got there, they had 200 unidentifieds on a shelf in boxes all the way back to the 70s. And, you know, that's just not right. Nobody stops to think that what is in the box is actually more than a skeleton. It is somebody's love, somebody's heart, somebody's baby. Somebody's wife, somebody's husband, you know, and they never get over the fact that the person didn't come back, and and that would drive me nuts, nuts, sir, if uh, if that happened to me. Maybe that's what keeps us all coming back to these cases,
0: knowing or fearing what we'd feel if that child was ours. It's true for Dennis's case. He isn't the only child that Cab and me has handled, not by a long shot. But, though it's been 20 years, Dennis's investigation has not been shelved. Though they've never stopped, there are some missing parts to the equation. They don't have a cause of death for Dennis, and there's one striking element of his autopsy report that hints at a possibility. He had cold medicine in his system. Specifically, toxicology showed a combination common in many over-the-counter treatments like NyQuil or Tylenol cold and flu. Dennis may have been sick, sicker than his caregivers realized, and died of an illness. Maybe he'd been given the medicine to help keep him quiet or so a parent could leave the home or work or any hundred scenarios. Maybe he'd had a reaction. DeKalb County can't say, But they do stress how carefully Dennis was placed near a church, near a cemetery, how well he was dressed in clothes that seemed nearly new. Whoever put him there likely felt sorrow over his death and expected he'd be found. They couldn't have known that it would take months. By the time he was discovered, his body was partially skeletonized. But he had not been hidden like Christmas dough or covered up like a secret his body ill-treated or stuffed into a suitcase. He had been placed on what could be viewed as holy ground. His new Timberland boots were double-knotted by someone who wanted them to stay on. But who and why? It's unlikely that he was in the foster system. Records would have been kept. If he had extended family, they likely lived far away or were not on speaking terms with his parents or guardians. It's always possible that an entire family knew and kept a secret, but for 20 years, and without the neighbors finding out. One tip did come in about a father and son staying at a local motel, but they were gone by the time authorities followed up. Then there were some rumors about a local family full of many children, who mostly kept indoors and had a suspicious father. But nothing ever panned out. It's likely, though, that Dennis had at least some connection to that area, maybe even to the cemetery itself and those who were buried in it. DeKalb County followed up with the local schools, and they found out about a few students who'd failed to return after Christmas vacation. But one by one, they tracked the children down, finding them in new apartments or living situations or even states. They spent a long time searching for a particular child who very closely matched the description of Dennis. He was eventually found safe, though, and then the leads ran dry. Since Dennis's discovery, a number of possible matches have been suggested and excluded. DeCab and me office told us they received those tips many times over. So in the interest of furthering the case, here are the official exclusions. Tavish Sutton Dwan Sims, Sabrina Long, D'Angelo McNeil, Kenzie Martin, Kenneth Smith, Dorian Smith, Quinn Woodfolk, Desmond Banks, Reuben Blackwell, Jamari Coleman, Ederson Coleman, Ashani Creighton, Oscar Miyasoba, and Michael Hicks. Some were excluded on race, DNA profiles, dental records, or sex. Others don't match the timeline of the case. By far, the most popular comparison suggestions have been Tavish Sutton, the baby abducted from Grady Hospital in 93, and Duane Sims. You can learn more about Tavish's case in our third season, which covers the Grady Memorial kidnappings. Duane Sims, who went missing in Michigan, might be an unlikely match to a boy found in Atlanta, Georgia. And the isotope testing proves this out. But... Perhaps it's the mystery around Duane's case that makes the match so enduring. So many people want him found. Four-year-old Duane allegedly disappeared on December 11, 1994, from the Wonderland Mall in Livonia, Michigan. His mother claims that he vanished on a trip to Target, but a 2009 Michigan news article states that police doubt her story. Duane's mother, Duana Jackson, was never charged in his disappearance, but then-Livonia Sergeant Shelley Holloway is quoted as saying, quote, We're pretty confident that Duane never made it to that mall. In fact, the Detroit Free Press reported in 1996 that though Duane appeared on that mall security tape, her son was not with her. An earlier Free Press article notes that Duane had failed two polygraphs, though we've come to accept that those are weak support of guilt or innocence. Within days of Duan's disappearance, over 200 tips had come in, and officers searched a local park. They'd search another park in 1999, this time with a full excavation. Neither effort resulted in any sign of Duan. The first suggestion that Duan be compared to Dennis came in 2003. And then DNA from Duan's mother and father ruled out that match. Since then, the tips have slowed down. The last time Dennis was featured in the local Atlanta news, DeCab didn't receive a single call. Dennis was somewhere between five and seven years old, though we think he was on the younger end of that range. He was approximately four feet tall and likely weighed around 50 pounds. He had black hair and wore red denim pants, a mixed pattern hoodie made of blue thermal and plaid material, and size 11 boots. That's the average size worn by five-year-old boys. The shoes were only sold in a few stores during their limited release. One of those stores you may have heard of. You may even remember being there. Walters, a shoe store in downtown Atlanta. It's a landmark. Though DeKalb went through the purchase records of the stores that received the shoes and tracked down the possible sources of the rest of his clothing, nothing has come of that information. Not yet. But maybe you remember, his shoes or his outfit or a little boy who might have lived near Clifton Church Road in DeKalb County. If you have any information that will give Dennis back his name, please call the DeKalb County Medical Examiner at 404-508-3500. We gave the Ware County Jane Doe, also known as Christmas Doe, stats at the top of the show a girl of two or three with ponytails and bows in her hair, dressed in a white polo top and thermal pants. Marla Lawson, who drew and sculpted, remembers all of those details. Like the staff at DeKalb County with Dennis, she can't forget them.
3: You know, who could do it? Who could do that? And you know it's a homicide because they went to all that trouble to hide it. And so then that makes you think, is. The mother's probably dead, too. Where's the mother? I mean, it just kills you. Just broke my heart. A little tiny diaper was on it, and I just wanted to scream. Then I started to get angry. It's a baby. And if you're a mother, hurts your feelings. really hurts your feelings. You have to think about the case, too. You know, who could do such a thing? If you have any
0: information on the identity of or the case of the Ware County Jane Doe, please contact the GBI tip line at 1-800-597-8477 or the Ware County Sheriff at 912-287-4326. If you'd like to hear more on the case of Dewan Sims, the incredibly talented Nina Enstead covered his case on Episode 5 of Already Gone. Thanks to Stephen Pacheco of Trace Evidence for voicing Dr. Snow's letter, and to content advisors Liv Fallon, Brandy Williams, and Winter Wheeler. Research assistants are Haley Gray and Kim Fritz. Next time, we begin the case of the Jenkins County Jane Doe, the most complicated research journey we've undertaken. We hope you'll join us then.